Welcome to AfterlifeTV.com. I'm Bob Olson. You can find us at AfterlifeTV.com. And today, you are not going to want to miss this interview that I'm doing, this conversation that I like to call them, because... I honestly believe that if I did this for 20 or 30 more years, this will be among the top interviews that I ever do. Uh, the messages, the lessons that you are going to learn from this are amazing. Our guest is Anita Morjani. Welcome, Anita. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really honored to be here. It's my pleasure. And uh, just so everybody knows, you're in Hong Kong, correct? Yes, that's right. I live in Hong Kong. And I am just a couple hours outside of Boston, so we got a lot of distance here. It's amazing what technology can allow us nowadays. I love it. Yeah. Let's begin by just talking about your story. I'll, I'll just let people know ahead of time. This is uh, the story of someone who has had a near-death experience, but with this major twist. Um, in comparison, I could almost say this is not just a mere near-death experience, as if any near-death experience was a mere. Um, this, is, uh, this is something that we not only can learn about the afterlife with, but we can learn about ourselves and, and really what life is all about uh, from this story. So we're going to begin by uh, asking you, Anita, if you could just sort of tell us where this story starts. I, I think uh, it starts with you being sick. Yeah, it starts with me being diagnosed with cancer. Uh, I mean, to me, this story starts much before that. It starts from what I believe caused the cancer, but um, for all intents and purposes, uh, the story starts from me being diagnosed with cancer and it getting progressively worse. And uh, in the beginning, I actually refused conventional treatment because I had watched uh, two people close to me die on chemotherapy. So I didn't have any confidence in chemotherapy also the fact that scientists are still trying to find a cure for cancer which means basically in medicine uh, there is no cure for cancer it's I mean everybody admits that there's no cure for cancer so I didn't understand why I had to go the medical route uh, if if there's if medicine itself admits there's no cure for cancer so I decided to try alternatives um, but for me it didn't work, uh, but I gained more understanding about that much later. But mm -hmm. my cancer continued to spread, and over a period of four years, um, I uh, the cancer had sped, spread throughout my body. I had lymphoma, oh my so yeah, it it spread from um, in fact all the way from the base of my skull all the way down to my abdomen, like through my chest, under my arms. Uh, Originally, when I was diagnosed, it was because I just had a lump over here and um, just where my collarbone is. But over a period of four years, it spread until my organs shut down. And then um, then I went into a coma. And that's when the near-death experience started. All right. And, and when you say, you, you know, these are tumors that are throughout your body, I understand they're fairly large. What, what in comparison, what size were they? I um, I tend to say lemons because that's actually that's what my oncologist said. He said the tumors are uh, are the size of lemons, and uh, they were swollen glands and tumors throughout, like uh, blocking my chest, blocking my lungs, so I couldn't breathe. Mm -hmm. Plus, whatever capacity that was left in my lungs was filled with fluid, and so I was on a uh, a ventilator. I had a 
a, a, an oxygen tank. My muscles had completely wasted, so I was in a wheelchair until I fell into a coma. I was either in a wheelchair or lying on the bed. I had open skin lesions because my body was so filled with cancer and toxins uh, and that they were, my skin was actually opening up. For, oh. So it was, um, yeah, it was pretty bad. So I had a full-time nurse who was dressing my wounds, the open skin lesions. I had one on my neck and one under my arm. Um, so And uh, these were weeping and open. Uh, and... Um, and then on the night of February the 2nd, 2006, I was in a lot of pain, a lot of pain. So the nurse gave me a huge dose of morphine. And on the morning of February the 3rd, uh, I didn't wake up. And my husband noticed that I was in a coma and he called for the doctor right away. Now, until this point, I was being treated at home with a full-time nurse. So on February the 3rd, on the morning of... Um, I'm sorry, it was the morning of February the 2nd that I didn't wake up and my husband rushed me to the hospital. He called my doctor and the doctor was there to receive me and and um, I was and, and they basically told my family that this was it. My organs had shut down and these were my last hours and to call, contact anybody um, that they had to contact who hadn't seen me. But basically, that was it. They were waiting for my last breath. And in fact, now... Prior to this, you you had been told you probably had about six months to live. Now you go into this this coma, and they tell your family what at most thirty six hours, correct? That's right. They said at most thirty six hours. In fact, the first uh, the oncologist, the resident oncologist of that hospital, um, she wasn't my regular doctor. My regular doctor was was waiting there for me, and then um, spoke to the resident oncologist, and the resident oncologist actually said we never take in patients in this condition basically she's just come here to die and and you know we uh, if that's what she's going to do we we basically we can't see why we don't see why she can't do that at home why did she have to come here oh. Oh. <laughs> so, so that's <laughs> such compassion <laughs> it's all business uh well, all right, so you, now you go into this coma, and there's so much more to this story, and I want people to know they can go to your website at anitamorjani.com, and the links will be below this video when people see it. Um, and and they, there's a lot more to learn with this story. Because this is Afterlife TV, we're going to focus more today on the uh, near-death experience and what that was all like, because there's so much to learn from that alone, but certainly... I recommend that people learn more about the about your story on your website. And let's just mention now, while we got people's attention with this story, that um, you have a book coming out March uh, 2012 called Dying to Be Me, correct? Correct. All right. And uh, so we'll get more. We'll get back to that later. And I do want to talk to you about what you think caused or what you know caused your cancer, but I kind of feel like you, did you know it at this time? Did you already know it before you went into the near-death experience, or was it something you learned in this experience that you had? Uh, completely learned it in, this, in the experience itself. Okay, so we'll wait on that, all right? And, and if, if we don't get to it, I'll ask you at the end, because that's pretty okay. significant as far as I'm concerned. Uh, major lesson for us to learn. All right. So the first thing you recognize, uh, your your 
you're in a coma, and yet my understanding is you weren't even really aware that you were in a coma. You were so aware of things. Is that correct? That's correct. I didn't know I was in a coma. I didn't. Um, I, I was aware of everything that was happening around me, so um, I didn't even realize that I was in a coma. I could hear the doctors, I could hear what they were saying, and I was kind of wondering, like, why are they saying that? And I didn't feel uncomfortable or anything. In fact, the pain was gone. All the pain I'd been feeling the previous night before the nurse injected the morphine, um, all of that was gone. I was starting to feel really light and free. And um, How... So you're not feeling pain, obviously, I mean, these are memories that you're having of this, right? I mean, sort of, it's all in hindsight, you re recognize that you had this awareness, but is there actual thinking going on? Are you curious as to why you're not feeling any pain anymore? Yes and no. Um, see, this is really hard to explain because... I would be hesitant to even use the word that I was thinking. It was more, I would use the word awareness. Okay. So I started to become um, aware, you know, I became aware that, that hey, I'm feeling free. And, and, and it's a very subtle difference between becoming aware and actually thinking because it, I think awareness is closer to sort of knowing but... Mm, it's more an emotion rather than uh, uh, it's not from the mind. It's more it's more a feeling. Okay. All right. All right. And I and I'm going to tell people now to really pay attention because uh, having heard uh, Anita's story, this is going to be the closest we'll ever get to interviewing a spirit to find out what it's like to be in spirit. Uh, so pay attention to this because what she's about to tell us really describes what I would expect in all the evidence that I've gained in my investigations in 13 years has taught me about what it is like to be a spiritual being. Um, you're, so you're lying here, you're, you have this awareness. What are some of the first things that, that you're aware of other than that you're, you're not in any pain? Are you aware of what your family members are doing? Yeah, I was aware of what my family members were going through, their anguish, their desperation. I couldn't understand it. Um, I was aware that uh, the doctor, I could hear the doctor telling them that these were my last hours. You know, I had 36 hours at best, if even. Um, and then I was aware that my husband was frantically trying to call my brother, who was in India, to tell him to come here. And then I was even aware that my brother... Uh, was already on a plane. He had sensed something was going on. So he'd already left his home, you know, he packed his bags, left his home and got on a plane to come to Hong Kong. And it was as though my awareness was just expanding, you know, it was, um, uh, it's, it still chokes me every time I recall it or think about it. So it was like I was expanding and then um, I was encompassing everything. So I became my husband and I became my brother. I was aware that my brother was frantically wanting to get to me before I actually died. Um, and frantically, so you're feeling his emotions, in other words. You, you yeah. recognize what he's feeling 
Is he on the, is he on a plane? Is he driving? What's he doing? He's on a plane. Yeah, that's I, what I thought. So he's on a plane and you can feel what he's feeling. Yes, I could feel what he's feeling. I could feel what my husband was feeling. Uh, my husband wouldn't leave my side because he he just he was just sitting riveted uh watching all the dials above my bed and he didn't want to move because he didn't know when I would take my last breath. Um, and, and he wanted to be there when you did. Um All right, so there's no thinking going. There's only an awareness going on. So are you feeling any turmoil in recognizing what they're going through? What would happen is that I would feel, um, I would feel their feelings and I would feel their emotions. And as soon as I started to feel those emotions and get attached to those emotions, um, I would, it was like simultaneously I would then feel myself actually being pulled away like a detachment and then as I would get pulled away I would be overcome by this feeling of just <clears throat> of just unconditional love like really uh, unconditional compassion and then there was this feeling that no matter what was unfolding before me in the in the physical world it didn't matter whatever that was unfolding it was still perfect it was still going to be perfect in the grand tapestry and so it was like there was um like i was being pulled away not um not consciously i wasn't consciously trying to pull myself away but i was being pulled away from the emotions of everything that was happening and then my awareness would rest somewhere else and then i would get it was like i would get drawn into those emotions um like it would be my, my mother, for example, and then I'd get drawn in, and again I would get pulled away. And it was as though I would be um, enveloped by this, just this unconditional love. And then again a feeling, like washed over with a feeling that, that everything is fine, everything's perfect. In the grand tapestry, everything's still going to unfold perfectly. Absolutely amazing for you to be able to focus in on one person you sort of did it one at a time it sounds like focus on that one as soon as your your attention focused on that one person is when you could feel everything that they were feeling and even know what they were doing you got people you were aware of things that were obviously with your brother who's flying there but you were aware of things that were happening outside of the room correct correct yes of my uh, of the doctors telling my husband and telling my mother I was aware of their emotions. In fact, it's like I became them. It's like there's no separation. It's as though the body keeps us separate, but but when we're not in our body, it's like we're all one. It's like I was able to feel every emotion they were feeling. It, it, it was really like um, I became whatever I focused on. And and it also felt like it was all happening simultaneously so it was like um, in that state the awareness is like 360 degree peripheral vision and distance is not an issue it doesn't matter how far but even it the time is not an issue it's as though everything is happening simultaneously it's like now, when I come back and now I'm back in my body and I'm expressing it, 
I have to put everything into um, linear time. I have to explain yeah. it all and kind of try to figure out, okay, in what sequence did it happen? But over there, it was like there's no sequence. It's like our brain gives it a sequence, but over there, there's no sequence. It's like it's all happening and, and, uh, and I'm aware of it all and it's just wherever my awareness rests, that's what unfolds for me. What excites me about that is, and I talk about you know what it's like to be a spiritual being. What excites me about it is because, um, you know, people ask questions about their loved ones in spirit, and they want to know if their loved ones in spirit are aware of them. And everything I've ever learned or heard through mediums or people who have had near death experiences, what 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 have you is that, yes, all they need to do is focus upon you, and they're aware of everything that's going on in your life. They're aware of everything that you're feeling, and and yet it has been difficult even for me to describe to some people that, um, that about this idea of time and space. And so they if you talk to them, they will become aware of you, and they'll know everything that's going on in your life. But this goes... This even goes a little bit into the future. Did you have any sort of recognition of the future as well? Yeah, future and past. Well, uh, with the future, there was uh, they had already taken uh, a lot of tests on my body and tests of my uh, organ function and things like that. So although the doctors had said the organs uh, were already appearing to be failing, or that they and that's why I was dying. Yeah. Um, I I seemed to be aware. I reached a point where I had a choice of whether I wanted to come back into my life or go on into death. And uh, there's a lot around there, which um, which I'll get into. But specifically about the future, I was aware that if I chose to go back into life, that my test results, which had already been taken, the tests had already been taken, the results would show that my organs were starting to function again. Yeah. And and if I chose not to go back into life, not to go back into my body, the test results would show that my organs had failed. And so basically the diagnosis would be my death was caused by organ failure due to end stage cancer. Oh. All right. Well so this is and this is a this is this is very significant. When you all right, so obviously you're given this choice. So I guess we're skipping ahead a little bit because obviously someone must have asked you to make this choice. Who who, who was there in this? What would you call this place? Is it, is it the spirit world? Is it some void? What what is it? What's your word for it? Well, I sort of use the other realm. The other realm. Okay, I love that. Great. All right, so we're in the other realm. Here you are. Let's just back up a little bit. At first, you're alone. You're aware of all these things that are happening. Eventually, some other spiritual being must come into your presence. Who, who, who is that? How, how would you describe this? Tell us about it. The first um, spiritual essence that I became aware of was my father, because he had deceased ten years prior to that. He had passed away, and um, so. It was really comforting to feel to feel his his essence, and then even the communication there is very different. It's not. See, people have said to me, "Is it mind to mind?" It's not even mind to mind. It's like 
you become them. It's like you become one with them and you just know it's instant. It's instantaneous. It's not a back and forth communication. Mm. So then what I'm doing is I'm now putting words to what it was that was instantly understood. Yeah. Impossible to do really, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And and basically the first thing I understood when you know when when I uh, was aware of my father's essence was that um, was that it it wasn't my time. He wanted to know. He wanted me to know that it wasn't my time. But but even though it wasn't my time, I still had the choice of whether I wanted to come back into my physical body or or go um, go further into the other realm. So he's the one who gave you that choice. Mm-hmm. He's the one who gave me that choice. You know, when he first showed up, again, I know, I know it's all happening at the same time. It's hard to describe, but I'm going to ask you to try to. I mean, what is that like? You haven't, you, hear, you haven't seen your father in 10 years, and all of a sudden, I mean, does he knock at the door? Does he just show up behind, sneak up behind you? What happens? How, does, how, does he, you, how do you become aware of his presence? And, and what is that like? Well, it was amazing. I mean, <laughs> it was. Um, it was, uh, you see, my, my father, he had really wanted me to get married when he was in, in physical life and, and uh, he didn't see my wedding, but also when I was growing up, we had a lot of cultural differences. So, um, because he's very, um, he's very traditional, Indian, Hindu, and I was more westernized because of my education and somehow, uh, that seemed to cause a little bit of a clash, a, a little bit of a culture clash. Yes. My values were a little bit different. <laughs> yes. I think a lot of us can relate to that. <laughs> uh, he had wanted me to have an arranged marriage, things like that. So, okay. um, But when I encountered him in the other realm, what was incredible, I think the first thing I felt from him, what overwhelmed me was the unconditional love and um, it was it, it was just overwhelming it was just all I could feel from him was just pure unconditional love and it was um, it's not like he comes in from behind or in front it's like you know you're just it's like oh my god it's it's you it's dad and um, and then there's this just this it this whole it's all emotion it's just pure raw emotion yeah. of unconditional love this feeling that was emanating from him and then I understood I just understood I just got it without him saying anything that he had always loved me unconditionally but but when we're in our physical bodies we are we're limited you know we think through our um, our values and our cultures and all these things are, are are part of physical life, part of being in, in, in expressing in the physical world. But without our bodies, none of that is there. And all there is is just unconditional love, just pure emotion. And that's all he had for me. And that's what he wanted me to know. Hmm. You know... I know you're aware of him, so there's all this awareness. Is there any visual going on at all with your father? And and if there is, how do you see him? It was 
not even not really a visual but more uh, more just a pure essence just a like a like a raw emotion emotional embrace essence um, we're not this is the part that's really hard to explain because when we are out of our body or when I was out of my body I wasn't contained there was no beginning and no end it was I was it was like I was infinite it was like I could be anywhere mm. um, I could be anywhere and um, I could so so that's why I was able to 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 be aware of my brother on the plane and I didn't know that he was coming to see me prior to that I didn't know he was already on the plane so even so my brother was in is on this realm my father was in the other realm it was like it was like I was everywhere and mm. it's like another sense kicks in if I can use an example an analogy if you imagine that you're you're blind and you're born blind and you're blind from birth and so um, your whole world is just about uh, it's just t touch and uh, smell and taste and hearing so your hearing's pretty sharp and your taste buds and your sense of touch is really sharp and you have no idea what anything actually looks like visually because you've never seen you've never used your vision and so even if you are given two plates that are that feel identical but are of different colors and somebody tries to explain to you that one is blue and one is green but you're touching them and you're even biting into them and there's no way that you can tell what's different about these two plates and the person says that it's colors one's blue one's green and you're like yeah but what's color they're identical so but one day let's say your sight kicks in just one day you uh, you, you begin to be able to see and and then and when you can see then you can see these two plates are different yeah. and you can see what way they're different and so for the first time you understand and when you become let's say you become blind again or even if you don't how do you then explain to other blind people what is that difference yeah and this yeah. is the exact problem that I have because it was like a new sense kicked in okay. for which we have no vocabulary for because <laughs> because it's not something that we use and um, that's right and that sense is I mean we say ESP and all but it's like uh, the body is not even in the way it's like total a hundred percent ESP total a hundred percent awareness of actually spilling out of your my body and feeling incredibly light and just being able to express and and feeling that oneness with everything else not just with every person but with everything with every character with every plant with every tree with every animal it's it was that kind of feeling it was like I was one with everything I can't even imagine what that must be like. I mean, it just—it sounds uh, ecstatically overwhelming all at the same time. It, and and to have this insight, to be able to focus in different directions, uh, to have this reunion that you had—all of it sounds incredible. It's the kind of thing that probably most people would love to experience, except they don't want to have to go through what you went through to have this experience. 
So here you are sharing it with us because there's a lot of things that you learned at what uh, about life in general. At what point did you learn about what caused your cancer? Had you learned, had, again, I know it's all happening at the same time, but let's just try to put it in linear. Did you learn this from your father? Did you learn it from, again, just another awareness about yourself? It was another awareness. Actually, it was after, if I had to put it in linear terms, I would put it at being after I was given the choice of whether to come back or not. And um, because because the first thing I felt, what I, I felt when I was aware that I had the choice to come back or not, I also felt at the same time that what would be what would be the point of coming back because my body was dying anyway because I was I seriously felt like all I was at that stage was a huge burden to my family to my loved ones hmm. and so um, I didn't see any point in coming back just to burden others so it's like uh, the decision seemed like a no-brainer <laughs> <laughs> yeah right <laughs> here I was in embraced in unconditional love feeling light free, no pain, um, so, but again, it seemed almost instantaneous, uh, I started to become aware, like, of this great clarity, this understanding of why I got the cancer, I, I started to understand that, that, um, that I had never been aware of the truth of who I really was, and the the way it is in that realm it's it's really interesting it's so hard to describe but it's almost like the answer is so obvious why haven't I seen that before oh, yeah. why do I not know this it just felt so obvious and so easy yeah do you and, did you feel like anybody was facilitating this information for you maybe your father maybe some other spirit guides I, or something that might have been like help facilitating this these this knowingness that you're you're recognizing about yourself i i did feel that i was surrounded by um uh, by spiritual beings or other essences mm -hmm. who i didn't recognize and also my best friend who had passed away three years prior from cancer she had opted for the chemotherapy route and she had passed away and um she was also very much there and so they it was like they were all there um their essence was really comforting me and embracing me and i felt very very comforted by all the presences of like familiar essences and then the other uh, um beings were uh i didn't recognize them as beings from or as people i knew in this lifetime mm -hmm. But yet, I knew that they loved me unconditionally. I knew that they were all there for me to to help me through. And it's it feels like that even though they are other entities or other essences, yet we're all connected. We're so connected. It was like um, whatever purpose we all have. It's like we're all we're all. In, in a sense, we're all wanting the same thing for, for the, everybody and for the whole planet. Yeah, it's yeah. It's like we're all one. I mean, you, me, and all of them, all of us, we're all one. We're all part of the same essence. So, so if I was being helped, it was by 
all the essence is all the energy. Yeah, well, amazing. So you have this whole team of people, really, who are helping you go through this experience. You're given, your father basically gives you this choice of, you know, deciding whether you want to go back into your body and live or stay where you're at, maybe move on to, to whatever's next from that point on. He gives you this choice. He, you said he, rec- he, he sort of, does he recommend that you go back to your body, right? He, he recommends yeah. you go back. Does he, does he explain why or does he have to? You just have this awareness of why because I know there's some reasons that you recognized that the benefits to going back, obviously not just to, to pass away, to wither away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, he um, basically, yes, he said to me, it, it's not your time, but it's still your choice. But in a way, I could sense that um, the, there was a certain uh, edging towards wanting me to go back. And then, in, in and then, as the clarity started to come, and it was the, this feeling that how could I have not recognized it before? It's that kind of feeling. I I started to understand that that I had never loved myself enough before, and I had always lived in fear. I'd always lived in fear of being true to myself, and um, and I'd always grown up trying to do the right thing or to. Um, to fit in, to fit into my culture, to fit in uh, with what people expected of me, and I was always a people pleaser. But in addition to always, um, in addition to not always being true to myself and always putting myself last, uh, I also lived in a lot of fear. I feared life. I feared not being good enough. I feared cancer. I feared illness. I, I lived a very fearful life. Mm. And, and um, what did you learn about this fear? Because I know you were now you talked about being able to see into the future, even able to see into the past, obviously, all at the same time again, right? Yeah. And so you recognize, are you able to recognize where you learn these fears, where you pick these fears up? Is that in, aware, in your awareness as well, maybe from this lifetime or even other lifetimes? Any of that come into play? It's- it was from this lifetime. I sense that I picked up all the fears from this lifetime. It's just conditioning. A lot of it is, I think, just the way the world is. It's like from whether it's from reading newspapers and everybody being afraid of getting cancer, all this, all the cancer awareness campaigns, but also the other fears of not being good enough, of um, always being a being a people pleaser, putting myself last, putting myself down, always the, the negative self-talk, all that is probably just, uh, I, I got the sense it was all from this life, but it's probably just conditioning, mm. generally just conditioning from culture, upbringing. And what did you learn about this, this fear and almost self-loathing type of mentality um, what did you learn about it and how it affected you physically? That's what I learned was um, is was actually the cause of my cancer, at least for me. And uh, and it was in that realization when I, I realized that actually I and everyone else 
we are all absolutely amazing, magnificent beings that have come here to express who we are and to be true to who we are. Why would we want to be anyone else that, uh, other than who we actually are and who we're supposed to be? All we have to do and be is to be true to ourselves. That's all we have to do. And it was the, the, the feeling, the sensation, the awareness, it was like, it was like, oh my God, how could I not know that? How, how obvious is that? Like, why else would I be on this planet expressing myself if I'm supposed to try to be someone else or try to fit someone else's model of what somebody is supposed to be? I've never checked in with myself. Like, who am I? What do I want to do? What are my feelings? And it's basically about following my own emotions because in that realm what was very real for me were my emotions just my emotions they were very very real and I realized that I'd never checked in with my emotions during my life I'd never asked myself how do I feel how do I feel about my life or what I want in life it was always about giving other people what they felt mm. and it was always about putting myself last because I thought it was selfish I always thought it was selfish to love myself and to give myself what I wanted. But I then started to really understand in in depth that you can't love another if you don't love yourself first because you don't have anything to give. Hmm. And I realized that only when I love myself can I actually love others. And, and being selfish actually comes from too little self-love, not too much. You recognize all this, and is this is it is it this insight that makes you decide to go back into your body? Yes, it was the the actual the words I would put on the insight would be now that you know the truth of who you are, um, your body will reflect that truth and be healed. Those are the words I would put to that feeling, that sense that I got in that understanding. And so, uh, so we're really talking about, uh, we're really talking about en en uh, illness uh, starting at an energetic level and then the physical sort of following suit. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so, so this awareness eradicates the, the illness that's within your energy, basically. Yeah. And so, yeah. if you go back, you are going to heal from this cancer? That's right. So I was I became aware at that point that now if I choose to go back, now that I understood, I understood why I had the cancer, I understood that my only purpose was to be myself and that was all. That's all that that's the only purpose any of us have is just to be true to who we really are. And I understood that at our core, each and every one of us, our essence is one of awareness, it's one of love. At our essence, at our core, we are pure love. That essence is just pure love, it's unconditional love. So if you are being yourself, then you are being love. Who else can you be if you're in touch with your core? Mm. Because if at your core you are love. And, and when I understood this, um, and I understood that my body will just reflect this new understanding, my physical body would reflect it. It was at this point that I sensed, 
both my father and my best friend communicating to me, now that you know the truth of who you really are, go back and live your life fearlessly. All right. And because we only have a few minutes left, but uh, you and I have already talked. There's going to be a part two to this interview that we're going, I'm going to post at a later date, but which is going to get a little bit even deeper than what we've talked about, uh, where we really ask a lot more questions about this. But why don't we bring us to the final part? So you decide to go back. You, you're back in your body. Tell us about that. Um, I started to come out of the coma. <clears throat> and um, as soon as I started to come out of the coma and my eyes started to open, I saw my husband standing over me. Um, and then I saw my brother and he had his luggage with him. He'd just come straight to the hospital from the plane. And they were they were really surprised that I was waking up and uh, coming out of the coma and and very happy. My husband was like really pleased. He was almost like dancing on the spot. <laughs> I don't blame him. <laughs> yeah, so he, he's a really great guy. And then um, and then the doctor um, who I had never met before being admitted to this hospital, being admitted in a coma. Right. He he walked in the room uh, to check on me and you know my family told him excitedly that I was waking up so so he said oh that's good news and he came over to see me and he said he said oh I'm so glad to see you're up and he, he was really upbeat and and so I said to him uh, good evening Dr. Chan and he said how do you know my name and I said aren't you the doctor that uh, that was here that treated me and and I even recalled he had removed fluid from my lung by putting a needle in through my back and uh, when I was choking and I and I said to him and you're aren't you the doctor that did that and he said he said but you were in a coma your eyes were closed how do you even know that I did that so so he was really shocked and then and um, and and that's when I, I realized I was in a coma because I actually didn't realize I was in a coma. <laughs> So, so I said to him, I was? I was in a coma? <laughs> this is your first recognition of it. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea I was in a coma because I was so aware of everything. But I was very, um, I, it was still very blurred to me, you know. It was, it was like I had one foot on this side, one foot on the other side because um, it was like everything had just happened and I, and I was still very confused. And, and then when he left the room, I said to my husband, why was he so surprised? Wasn't he the one that told you that that I only have about 36 hours at best? And then my husband looked shocked and he said, he didn't say that to me in the room. We were like down the hallway about 40 wow. feet outside the door. The door was shut. My goodness. And I said, really? <laughs> and, and that's when we started to realize that something had happened. And ultimately, uh, you, you healed from this, obviously, just as you expected you would. In fact, you said you could see into the future a bit that your tests would come back, that your, your, your organs yeah. were, not, that were not shutting down now uh, because you made this choice. Otherwise, they were to come back that, that they had shut down. Um, this is, all this comes together exactly as you expected it to be. You healed miraculously quickly. I mean, right? 
very, very quickly. In fact, that was the other thing that I could see. I realized that when I was on the other side, in the other realm, and I realized that my body would reflect this very quickly, and I knew that it would not be months or uh, you know, it would be it would be more like days or even a, just a couple of weeks at the most. I knew that I would be feeling a lot better, and that's exactly what happened. Um, within four days, the tumors had reduced by about sixty percent, sixty or seventy percent, and um, within two or three weeks, they were when they were conducting tests, they couldn't they couldn't even find the cancer. They did a lymph node biopsy and. Um, the, the radiologist had to mark a lymph node in my body to biopsy yeah. and he couldn't even find a lymph node that was big enough to even suggest cancer. When just days prior they were the size of lemons. Exactly and he had he had those original scans on the light box and then he, he was using the ultrasound to try and find a lymph node and he was getting really confused because he was saying there's just I just can't find anything and here were these scans showing that my body was ridden with tumors yeah it's it's a miracle no question about it um, the story is amazing you're here uh, that was February 2nd 2006 when you went into the coma here you are today uh, November two, uh, 2011 you're gonna be telling your story in this book, Dying to Be Me, March 2012. Very exciting. A lot more detail in the book, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of detail in the book. And, and there's a lot more detail on your website, uh, anitamorjani.com. The links are below these videos. I love the, there's a phrase when you go to your website, it says, remembering your magnificence. Yes. That's what it's all about. <laughs> That is what it's all about, that every single one of us is a magnificent being, absolutely magnificent. So I'm going to end this interview here, and we're going to pick up a new one, because these can only be so long on the internet. Um, we're going to pick up a new one. If people want to watch part two of this interview, make sure that they put their email address in so that they get the announcement of it um, here on the page. And they'll find out when when we post the part two later on. Just for now, I just want to say thank you for sharing this story. I'm frustrated. Uh, it's already been 46 minutes, and I feel like I didn't cover but a fraction of your story. And it's frustrating to me, but we don't have hours, unfortunately. And that's why you wrote the book that you wrote, right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for, for honoring us with your presence and your message. I do think it's, it, it can change the world on an individual basis. It can change any one of us if we really fully understand the message that you're trying to give us. And um, I look forward to part two of this. So thank you, Anita. Thank you. My pleasure.
Hi, everybody. Bob Olson here with Afterlife TV. Again, you can find us at afterlifetv.com. This is a continuation of an interview that I did with Anita Morjani. She's the author of an upcoming book called Dying to Be Me. This is sure to be a best-selling book, uh, without doubt. Uh, probably a New York Times bestseller for sure. If you're, if you don't know her name yet, you you're going to know it uh, in the near future. We have been talking about her experience of really uh, having cancer, uh, dying from that cancer, like having you know an experience where she was dying, going to the point where she goes into a coma, is brought into the hospital. They tell her family she's got 36 hours uh, at the most to live because her organs are shutting down. She goes, she has this coma, near-death experience. She becomes aware of all these things uh, about herself. She recognizes really what caused her cancer. These are all in the part one of this interview. Uh, she, she has a reunion with her father. Uh, who gives her a choice whether to live or die. And she recognizes so much about herself and about life in general. And we're going to continue that conversation now so we can learn more about those, th those things from this fascinating experience. So thank you for letting us continue this, uh, Anita. Really appreciate it. There's so much to this story. So uh, we're, we're grateful for you. It's my pleasure, actually. I love sharing it. Well, that's great. Why don't we just go back, you know, in the break, you and I had talked a little bit about some of the things that we didn't cover um, that are really significant, I think. And one of them is you recognized when, you, when you're in the coma, having this uh, near-death experience, that uh, your lifetime and your husband's lifetime were connected. Tell us about that. Yeah, I became aware that my, my husband's life and my life purpose was linked. And I, I realized that if I chose not to go back into my, into my body, if I chose um, not to go back to physical life, that he would follow soon after, that he would probably die sometime uh, shortly after I left. And, um, and then when I started again, though, um, I didn't feel sad about it. It still felt that it was perfectly okay, whichever way I chose, whether I chose to come back or whether I chose to um, to stay in the other realm, it was still okay. Even if my husband followed me uh, shortly after, I still got the feeling, the sense that everything is still perfect. It's still okay. Now, this is an interesting perspective that you have uh, because one of the things that you told us about in part one was of this interview was that you often did things for other people. You often put yourself second. Here you recognize that your, your, your husband's life purpose is connected to your being alive, and yet it still doesn't really... It's not the reason that you decide to come back. You recognize that if, if you choose to, to die, that everything's going to be okay. He'll be fine. Yes, because um, I realized that the, the connection that we have with each other, like the connection I had with my father and with my brother, is beyond time and space. It's, it, it's 
it's not limited by this physical life and even if I chose to die it wouldn't end my connection with him wouldn't end so even if he followed me even though we were meant to be together at this time it it wouldn't the connection wouldn't end just because my physical body died but what about his life purpose now does, does he you know do you believe in um pre-charting our lives ahead of time you know maybe a couple souls get together over a couple beers and they say hey you know I'll be your husband you'll be my wife you know let's do this this is my purpose this is your purpose we'll help each other out with that do you believe in that sort of thing um maybe not to that extent (laughs) no beer maybe maybe not the beer (laughs) (laughs) well I think that um, all right. So what I what I feel now, even after coming back into life, I've actually had this conversation with my husband, and I can let me tell you what he said, and maybe that can put it into perspective. Okay. Um, when after I healed, after I came back and I healed, um, my you know my husband was he had been so fully. Uh, engaged or involved in helping me through my illness and helping me through um, right to the last days like caring for me and after I've healed um, and I said to him that do you know that I understood that on the other on the other in the other realm I understood that our purpose is linked and that if I died you would probably you would have followed soon after and he actually said to me that uh, he said that sounds right I probably would have because when I was helping you I felt that that was my purpose being there by your side seeing you through the cancer if you had died I would have failed in my purpose and my purpose would have been over and those are his words do you think though as I don't know I don't know if you call it, you know, I'm just going to use my terminology, as souls, okay? Back, you're back in the spirit world, we're, we're soul to soul. Do you think that there would have been any sense of regret that your husband might have had after he passed and said, you know, I had a lot more things I would have liked to do? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so, because as souls or as spirits, I think that we are infinite anyway. This, this slice of time that we're expressing in the physical body is just one slice of time uh, out of millions infinite numbers of slices of time so I don't um, I don't envisage any any regret whatsoever I think that even if I had passed over um, even knowing that I would come back and be healed I wouldn't have expressed any regret because uh, um, I, th- I don't get the sense that regret is even a feeling or an emotion that exists in that state, in that condition. I see. Yeah. That's my sense. Okay. You know, the, the, forgive me for asking this question, but you seem sure. you have insight that most of us have not had. Certainly, I have not had. Um, and so the question comes up when you say that the question comes up I think of uh, if someone took their own life you know I think about suicide and and people have all sorts of emotions around that for obvious reasons and and certainly we'll say the loved ones of you know the who have survived a suicide um, they worry about their loved one in the afterlife 
because of a deep sense of regret or whatever. You know, some pe people believe in punishment. I don't believe in it. But, but I certainly have always wondered about this deep sense of regret for that. You're sort of saying otherwise. Is, is, even in that case, you believe the same? Yeah. I don't think the person, the, the, the spirit or the essence of the person who committed suicide um, feels, I think, we become removed. It's like when I w became involved, when I started to get sucked into the drama, the emotions that was unfolding of my family, yeah. I was then pulled away simultaneously. So, um, so even for somebody who's committed suicide, even in that moment, you get. I would imagine that they would get sucked in to their family, crying, weeping over their body. They would start to get sucked in. But I'm good. I would assume that the same thing would happen to them as happened to me, where then they they then simultaneously feel themselves being pull, pulled away. Their emotions are just being pulled away, and then they just get surrounded by this unconditional love. Yeah. And and. And then there's this feeling that that it's okay. It's all still going to work out perfectly in the grand scheme of things. It's beautiful. Um, beautifully said, and, and what a great lesson. I want to talk, too, about something we talked about in, on the break, was you talked about your brother and, and some things that you recognized about your relationship with your brother. Tell us about those. My brother is, um, he's older than me, <clears throat> but when he was on the plane coming to see me, and I became aware that he was on the plane coming to see me, um, I, I felt very protective of him. And, and again, my emotions started to, to be drawn into what he was feeling because he was fully aware that I was dying. And so um, he, was, he was already in grief and emotional on the plane and I started to get drawn into his emotions and um, and then I I became aware of what uh, could be interpreted as previous lives or but it didn't feel like previous lives because it seemed to be happening simultaneously so uh, I experienced other lives with my brother where I was protective over him as though I was older, the older sibling, as though I was caring for him and he was, um, he was very young and, um, and it felt as though I was very protective of him and so that feeling came in where I didn't want to hurt him now, I didn't want to die before he arrived. And as as soon as I started to get sucked into that feeling, again I started to get pulled away. But the other lives that I was aware of seemed to be happening then and there. They didn't seem like they were in the past. So once again, we we use the we use the phrase "past lives." That's really because we live on, on the physical plane. We see everything in linear time, in yeah. in in the other realm, as you say. Uh, the word "past" uh, isn't really doesn't really exist it was other lives you were aware of these other lives and how they affected you even at that very moment about wanting to protect your brother that's amazing yeah it's very yeah. cool it's very cool because um, 
I would assume, and you believe too, from having this experience, that that these other lives affect us here uh, on Earth, on the physical plane. So, so even the protectiveness that you might feel about your older brother at times would be related to this other lifetime that you had as his older sister? Yes, it would. And also I feel that sometimes these feelings, uh, as you say, they come through. And I think sometimes uh, we feel like, you know, when we we kind of feel uh, that, oh, in a past life I must have been so-and-so or I must have been like this. I actually no longer think of those as past lives. I, I, I'm now thinking that, okay, beyond this physical body, there's, time is not linear. So I am those things that I'm feeling, but probably in a life that's running simultaneously mm. right now mm. in another realm. In another plane. That's very cool. And so, not trying to stump you here, but how would maybe deja vu fit into this? Um, I think because time, again, time is very, very different. So, uh, deja vu is almost like us getting a glimpse. So, it's almost like a glimpse outside of our body of something that hasn't happened so it's like almost like a fold in time so getting a glimpse of something ahead of time sort of like what happened to me with the test results I already knew what the results were going to be if I chose to come back well, yeah and did now that's a different that's a little bit a little bit different but did that feel like a deja vu experience when the test results came back Absolutely, because when the when the doctor came in and said, we have great news, um, her organs are functioning, we've just got the results in, and my husband and my brother, my mom, they were all really happy, they were like, oh, that's great news, and and I actually said, but but didn't we already know that? Because again, I was, I was still very, very confused and everything was blurry, it was still like within the same day that I'd come out of the coma, and I said, but we already knew that. And then they looked at me and they said, no, you couldn't have known that. And I said, no, but I did. I knew that. How long did it take you before you kind of put it all together and, and, and figured out what, what really happened? It, it took a number of days of just a little bit each day. And then, and then I think by the fourth or fifth day, uh, the first few days I was euphoric and I didn't understand why I was euphoric. I was just really, really happy and I kept telling everybody, I'm going to be fine. I know I'm going to heal. I just know I'm going to heal. And nobody could understand why I knew this. I mean, least of all the, the doctors, they were really skeptical and they were, you know, because I had all these tubes in me, the oxygen tube, a food tube, and they were really uncomfortable. So I wanted them to start taking the tubes out and they were refusing to take the tubes out and I said um, I you know my appetites come back I'll eat don't worry I can breathe now and I was pulling them off <laughs> and um, so they were like really monitoring me and I had all these um, things connected to my heart and everything and so they were monitoring me really closely but I was really euphoric and happy and I kept saying something's happened I can't explain it but something's happened and I know I'm gonna be fine and and then I started um, asking I asked my husband to bring my my iPod because I wanted to listen to music and uh, and I 
um, I wanted to eat different foods, like not hospital food. Yeah. And, and so when the um, doctor took out the food tube, which I hated, it was the worst thing of all because it really itches the throat. They took that out. They actually said the best thing for me to eat would be ice cream because it would soothe the throat. And I was really thrilled. I said, <laughs> yes, ice cream. <laughs> I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I can do that. So I was eating ice cream and I was listening to my music on my iPod. And and the interesting thing, I, I couldn't. I couldn't um, wear the earphones of my iPod, partly because of the wires and partly because I still had uh, bandages around my neck because of the skin lesions. So my husband put them on little speakers on my bedside table. Mm. Now I was in the ICU and separated from the other rooms by a curtain, and so I was, um, you know, I was I was talking and eating ice cream and playing my music, and I wanted to play upbeat dance music. <laughs> And all the relatives of all the other patients who were really sick all complained to the nurses that, you know, this, <laughs> this person's making too much noise. And, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, so then they came and they told me that they'd have to move me because the ICU was for people who were dying. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, that's one way to get, for them to get the message, isn't it? So they kicked you out of there. They give you your own room after that? Yeah, they gave me my own room, and this is like four days, four days in ICU, and they, and the doctor actually, when he came in to tell me the other patients were complaining, and, and the tubes were out by then, and he had my file, and he actually said, I don't know what to make of you. I don't even know what to write in your file anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and he sort of turned his head. And, I'm sure the doctors are are flabbergasted by, by this whole thing. Um, I know that uh, against your your wishes, sort of as a last resort while you were in the coma, they actually started the chemo with chemotherapy, which you were afraid of before and you didn't want. While you're in the coma, they give it to you like last last resort. Did did the doctor or any doctors want to take credit or give the chemo credit for your healing afterwards? Yes, there was a bit of co controversy over that because. Uh, my my own doctor prior to that had actually said by this point it's too late for chemo because the organs are starting to shut down and chemo is not the right thing. So the doctor that decided to ad administer the chemo uh, put it down to the chemo actually working. But yet a third doctor, an oncologist who later studied my um, my reports said that it's impossible that it's the chemo. He, he said, I've gone through everything uh, and chemo does not react this way. And my cycle was far shorter than what would have been called for had I actually taken chemo when I was able to. Yeah. So, so for one thing, it literally, the, the, the test results started showing within days. So he said, there's no way that it was the chemo. So... They put yeah, you through a lot of lot of. Excuse me, I didn't mean to drop. I, I know they no, put you through a lot of tests that you thought, well, you knew were unnecessary. Correct. Correct. But yeah. the nice thing about it is that now you have all these test results to sort of as 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 evidence uh, <laughs> of really what happened or what didn't happen. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, as 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 far as what the doctors expected, so you have all these test results. So 
there's no question about the fact that this was what some might call a miraculous healing. Is this, is this correct? Yes, and um, uh, I'm actually relieved that I do have all the tests, and I really didn't want. I was um, I was really against having all the tests, especially the lymph node biopsy, oh. and there was a um, uh, you know where they take fluid out of the spine to test the the, the spinal fluid because. It was supposed to have spread in there as well, but they could find no trace of cancer there. And so, and it was all really painful, and so I was protesting against it. But today, yeah, I'm really glad they did it all because yeah. I've that as a testimony now. That's right, exactly. I imagine the spinal test was painful. Yeah, yeah. very. And well, the, and the um, lymph node biopsy. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure, and you, and I'm sure you still have scars as a result, you know. Um, yes. Oh, I forgot to mention one one other thing. The yeah. skin lesions. They said that I would need reconstructive surgery because my body didn't have the nutrients to heal. It was far too weak, and the lesions were were huge, gaping wounds, and so they had scheduled reconstructive surgery for like three weeks later. Oh. But when the so the reconstructive surgeon even came in and looked at it and even said that, okay, you're too weak now and these are not going to heal on their own. So he scheduled it for three weeks after he looked at it. But when he came back to see me, he said, they're healing. I don't need to do anything. So even though I've got scars, they completely healed on their own. I love this. This What a great story. Fascinating, um, insightful, miraculous. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the healing. We'll call this part two here, the random questions questions um, to Anita. Let's talk a little bit about healing, you know, because we talked in part one about, in your case, you know, it was really the energy of the fears and, and the way a lot of the beliefs that you had and, and, and the way that you thought over the years, it created the, the energy that led to the physical cancer in this case, the physical illness. What can people do from what you've learned in this experience? What can any one of us do, either one, to sort of clear that energy and stay healthy, or if we are suffering with something, some kind of illness, uh, what can we do to try to heal, heal ourselves in this way? Um, the best thing that anybody can do for themselves, no matter what I, I feel, is to really get in touch with who they really are. And when I see, say that, I mean, it's really to get a sense of your own emotions. Like, ask yourself, what do I like? What do I like doing? What makes me happy? What makes me tick? What brings me joy? What brings, makes me feel alive? And it's that. It's, I think it's that that we forget we forget to get in touch with ourselves and I think when we feel this joy, this passion then we get into this um, that's when we're at our healthiest and our happy that's where when we do things we're coming from a state of being rather than a state of doing when we're always doing things but are we doing it out of being or are we doing it out of just doing when we live in fear uh, that's when we are in a state of doing. Mm -hmm. So when all our emotions, and the reason why we do everything 
is because I'm scared. I'm scared to be left behind. I'm scared I won't have enough money. That's why I've taken this job. I'm, you know, I'm scared I won't be liked, and that's why I'm doing this. I'm scared, and so if every decision we make is based on fear, mm. then we're constantly doing things, and we lose touch with who we really are. We just we lose. Basically, that's what happened with me and and my soul or spirit or whatever went through a real identity crisis and um, uh, and to me that's what caused the cancer. I feel that cancer is not an illness of the body. That's why the body just reflected what I was inside. Uh, the cancer to me was more, I could say, an illness of the emotions or an illness of the identity, mm -hmm. but it's not an illness of the body. So what could we ask ourselves if we were trying to make a choice about something? Maybe a new job or, uh, you know, what, what we wanted to do one day. It's not something as simple as that. That we, we, we would need to ask ourselves some kind of a question. Am I doing this out of fear or a, a sense of obligation or responsibility? Or am I, am I doing this because it's something that I want to do, something that feels loving to me? Is that sort of the kind of question we would ask? Yes. And also, if we're planning to do something is to ask ourselves, how does it make me feel to do this? Ah. Is it a kind of a heavy, draining feeling, or do I feel uplifted and light and passionate about doing it, whatever it is? And, and those are the kinds of questions I would ask. Mm. Because it's the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year, the more we continue to do things that are based out of fear yes. instead of love, it, this yes. builds up in our in our energy body. What would you call that? Yes, it really builds up in our energy. Um, it drains us. It and it includes even when we choose foods that we're going to eat. You know, it's great to eat healthy food, and I advocate eating healthy. But why are we eating healthy? Is it because we're scared that we're going to be sick, or is it because we love our bodies and we love the way the healthy food is going to make us feel. Yeah. I used to eat healthy food before I had cancer and so many people said, oh, but you used to eat so healthy and you watched everything. Yeah, but that's because I was scared. I was so scared of cancer that uh -huh. I wouldn't eat anything that, caused, that was said to have caused cancer. But today, I mean, even if I eat a piece of chocolate, I make sure I enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And you're not telling yourself, you know, chocolate causes cancer as you're putting it into your mouth. Like, I feel so guilty because this is unhealthy for me, right? You're thinking, yes. I love chocolate. Chocolate tastes good. Is that the idea? Yeah, and it's like, how, uh, how does it make me feel? Oh, it makes me feel amazing. But at the same time, if, um, you know, if I if I feel that I want to lose some weight and so I've got to cut out the chocolate and all that's fine too I'm doing it because it's something I want to do it's yeah. not like oh man I've got to so it's really about checking in with how you feel and and uh, you know and so if you want to eat healthy foods uh, what I would do now is when they say I want to eat more healthier options it's getting in touch with the feeling of how it would make me feel to be fit and healthy and and get in touch with that feeling and that's why I'm eating it not because I'm scared of getting sick or scared of cancer yeah yeah along the same lines how do we get in touch with this core our core essence of love you know we go through our day-to-day -day lives and 
you know, there's a lot of chaos and drama out there. How do we tap into this core essence that we are love? Sometimes, you know, if I'm driving through Boston traffic, I'm not feeling love. You know, just my core essence <laughs> doesn't feel love. But, you know, when I drive up, you know, into the countryside and, um, you know, now I can feel love. How do we get in touch with that love when we're maybe not really feeling it sometimes? Well, the thing is to, first of all, stop. Stop everything we're doing. And to me, the gateway to that place is my emotions. Um, I think emotions are underrated. They're not talked about enough. They're not... And, and nobody's ever taught me that the most important thing is how you feel about yourself. Mm. Nobody ever told me that when I was growing up. It was all about what you do and how you present yourself. It's never about how you feel. What I've learned from my near-death experience is that the most important thing is how I feel. So when you're feeling frustrated and you're caught up in Boston traffic, okay, you've got you've to keep going. But make sure that there's a point in your day where you can actually stop. And that's what I would do now is to really just stop and relax. And just I just start to um, vision everything lifting off and all my muscles relaxing. I try to recreate that. For me, I try to recreate that NDE space, I call it that. But the gateway is my emotions. It's really checking in. How am I feeling? How am I feeling about what I'm doing right now? How do I feel about everything, everything that's happening in my life? What can I tweak to make me feel better right now? So it's that's feelings. great advice. And let's take it a step further because, you know, there's a lot of people who don't feel that great about themselves. And you recognize that from the past. How, how, can, people, how can people find that love for themselves if they're not feeling it? Is there, is there a way to do that? Yeah, well, I guess the feeling doesn't come instantly. So what um, I, I think the best thing that I can think of to suggest is to start by doing little things for yourself. Start by doing things for yourself that you've always wanted to do but never done before for whatever reason because you didn't think you were worthy or you didn't think you deserved it or other things seem more like a priority. So then... The first thing I would do is to start becoming aware of where I've stopped putting any priority on myself. And, mm. and so when I'm thinking that, oh, I'm going to do this, uh, oh, I'm not going to do this for myself because so-and-so needs a new pair of shoes or whatever, stop and think, okay, maybe I do need to do this for myself. Maybe it is more important because... Because so-and-so, whoever it is, whether it's the family, the kids, the father, the, uh, the husband, they, all these people around you who depend on you, they need you to be 100% healthy and happy. Yeah, that's right. It's, and so it's a trickle-down effect. You know, it, it, if, if you feel better about yourselves, like, for instance, if you go out and you get yourself a massage or, you know, if you maybe you hire someone to clean the house for you once a twice a week, you know, um, you know, whatever it may be, when you start doing these little things that some people feel as though they just don't deserve, you get over that and recognize that by doing it for yourself, as you said, it's difficult. To, we can't, we can't give love to other people if we don't feel the love within us, um, if yeah. we don't have love for ourselves. 
this is a way of being loving to yourself so that it affects all the other people that are around you. Is that also what you're saying? That's correct, yes. So, um, so it means stop seeing it as selfish because when we stop, it, yeah, we need to stop seeing doing things for ourselves as being selfish. Yeah. Because yeah. when we don't do things for ourselves, we become needy. And yeah. that's even worse. Uh, what you're saying there reminds me, we, we, both, we both have a friend, uh, Cheryl Richardson. She's written a great book called The Art of Extreme Self-Care. All about this subject, you know, trying to teach people. And it's interesting because I know some people actually, you know, criticized uh, some of the things that she wrote in that book because it made them, it was their interpretation, you know, projecting that, you know, that she was suggesting that people be more selfish. And, you know, really, yes, I, be more selfish if, if it's going to make you feel better about yourself, right? As long as it's not at the expense of others. Exactly. And I think that when somebody is actually really, um, is actually happy, fulfilled, self-fulfilled, and they have everything, that, and all their needs are met, yeah. they're actually the most generous people, generous and selfless people you can have. Whereas when somebody um, is, is putting themselves last, not because they want to, but because they feel they should, mm -hmm. and because they feel it's a selfless thing to do, and they never, ever fulfill their own needs, they actually become needier on other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you believe that, um, that you, had, you, know, you had this experience... Um, and where you you know you were able to make that choice and come back and your energy was clear basically do you believe that any any one of us can can heal our illnesses by doing some of these things we've talked about I think it would help I think that um, I think that generally if our values were different if everybody's values were different and uh, the way we look at illnesses because this is the other thing that really disturbs me is how much awareness there is about cancer and I don't agree with it. Yes. I know many people will not disagree will not agree with me saying this. I know many people will disagree with this, but I think that the more aware we become about cancer, the more we are actually um causing more cancer because I feel that even the way our medical system works is instead of looking at wellness people are looking for illness and our diagnostic tools are all designed to look for cancer mm -hmm. and that's the first thing everybody looks for yeah. and even TV ads and you know everybody is just telling you to go get checked out for cancer and that's all we've all got we're being it's like we're being programmed to look for cancer yeah that bothers me I find that very disturbing because I recognize I that my wife and I have had a conversation about this same thing so I'm excited about it. I didn't mean to interrupt again uh, oh, no. you get me excited because uh, everywhere you go especially you know there's all this breast cancer awareness uh, stuff going on and so everywhere you go you see a pink ribbon you know you see you know you can have a box of cereal and, and there's something about breast cancer awareness on there but it's true uh, we have license plates up here uh, in, in, in Maine where, you know, you're driving down the road and there's that pink ribbon on the license plate. You know, the whole license plate is, is, is covered in pink. And so you really can't go through your day without being reminded about breast cancer. Now, yeah. I get that there's a positive side to it. They're trying to raise money for, 
for research, but at the same time, there's a negative aspect to it, which is what you're talking about. It just keeps reminding us about it, and we have fear. Women have fear about it unbelievably, and that just keeps it in your mind every single day. Is correct? That's correct, because I had huge fear about cancer as well. Huge fear because I was surrounded by it. You yeah. know, I, I had people very close to me that had cancer, and um, and it was yeah, it was quite a shock to the people around me when I got cancer because it was like it was happening to one person and the next and the next and and because I was reading up a lot about cancer because I wanted to help the people I knew who had cancer. The more I would read on it, the more afraid I became of cancer. Yeah, and um, now even though I've written a book and all, but apart from writing and talking, I tend to talk very little about about cancer itself. I tend to focus a lot more on the healing and the lessons and the inspiration, but I never, I rarely ever focus on actually uh, cancer and cancer symptoms or, you know, and I, I don't actually advocate that people have to go for early screenings and, and things like that. I don't really advocate that. And I know I'm saying this and people will probably disagree with you me. Know what? But, yeah, uh, it's okay because, well, first of all, I agree with you. My wife, uh, Melissa, uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2008. And um, interestingly, she felt the same way that you felt about chemotherapy and a lot of the traditional ways of healing cancer. She decided to do it alternatively. And what she chose to do was, was she decided to treat herself uh, according to what felt most loving to her body. That's and she great. felt the other alternatives, surgery and chemotherapy, did not feel loving to her. Exactly. And actually created more fear. And, yep. and I think a lot of people can relate. I don't think there's any argument. You can go into the hospital, and that can be a very negative experience. You know, sometimes very, there's you know, nurses and doctors can be very detached, and, you know, there's pain involved. And, and that's the, what she saw. She said, I don't feel like that's loving to me. I'm going to treat myself more lovingly. And she did it in other ways. So, you know, my wife and I agree with everything that you're saying here, and and there's a lot of people out there who do, and yet we recognize that other, you know, a lot of people don't believe in these things, and that's okay too, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, your book "Dying to Be Me" is coming out March 2012. It's interesting. Uh, at what point did you write this book? Actually, um, very shortly after my near-death experience, I started writing more for cathartic reasons. It's more because I felt that it was very hard for anybody to understand what had happened to me, or I was finding it hard to express it, so I just started writing as a release. Yeah. And, yeah. and, then, um, and then my brother found this website called uh, Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, and he showed me the link, and uh, and then when I when I looked at the website, I thought that's interesting. There are people that have had something similar, like crossed over and all. So there was a um, uh, there was a button which you click on. If you, it said if you've had an experience yourself and you'd like to tell us about it, please click here. So I clicked, and then I had to fill in this really long form. So I filled it in, and then I wrote my experience and I submitted it. And it, it said, um, you know, after I clicked submit on the screen, it, it said, uh, we will get back to you within about three weeks. 
But I got a response within hours from the person who ran the site who said, I'm really excited to, <laughs> to, to read your story. So what happened from there, to cut a long story short, is that um, I started writing on their forum. And so I started, uh, that's when I first started to realize how cathartic it was for me to write and to answer people's questions. Yeah. And, um, and, and I kept a collection of everything and then I created the website. And the book itself though only came about in six months. But, but I had been writing and a lot of the things that I wrote previously, I sort of wove it into the book. Oh, right, but, right. But, but the book project only started in March of this year when Oh, okay. So tell us about that. How did that happen? I understand you met someone rather famous in this field, Dr. Wayne Dyer. <laughs> yes, that's right. Oh, that was really amazing. I, on my birthday, March 16th of this year, I got an email um, from Hay House that said, Dr. Wayne Dyer has become a fan of yours. And that blew me away. I thought, fan of mine? Because <laughs> Because at that point, I mean, not not a lot of people knew me except people who read that forum and stuff like that. So, so I was really surprised. I thought Wayne Dyer has become a fan of mine, and um, and Hey House said that if you're planning to write a book, we would like to help you and publish it. Wow. So I was blown away because that was on my birthday. I thought, what an incredible birthday present! No kidding. Yeah, and um, so of course I responded and said yes, I would love to. And then, um, and and then what happened is that they they then wrote back and said Wayne Dyer would like to write would be would love to write the the forward for your book. So I was really thrilled. Yeah. And then another friend of mine told me she'd be li she'd been listening to Hay House Radio, Dr. Wayne Dyer's show, uh, every week, and she said he talks about you. He talks about your NDE. I said really. <laughs> so I started tuning and I went into the archives and I listened to it. And there he was talking about my <laughs> week after week after week. I thought this is incredible, and um, so then one night I thought I'll call in on his show because he takes callers. Oh, that's great! So, yeah, so I called in. It was um, because of the time difference. It was four a.m. Hong Kong time, and it's one p.m. on your side of the world. And so I, I set the alarm clock and I woke up and then. I, I dialed and dialed. I, I woke up half an hour earlier because I thought I'll start calling early just to, you know, just to be able to get through. Yeah. So I, I got through and the phone was ringing and somebody actually picked up and told me to hold, and I was really thrilled. And um, and so I was. Uh, so then Wayne, you know, his show started and he's talking, and then he says, "Okay, so we got some callers." And then Diane Ray, the producer, she goes, she goes. There's a caller all the way from Hong Kong, so let's take that one. So there were like maybe eight or ten callers they put on hold, but she just thought she'd take Hong Kong because it was the furthest one away. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, so when she said, um, she said, there's a caller by the name of Anita from Hong Kong. And the moment she said Anita from Hong Kong, Wayne goes, oh my God, I know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, and you got so, to, so the, that was the first time you got to talk to him? That was the first time I got to talk to him, and then he told Diane, hold all the other calls, and then he made me share my story on air. Mm. Then after the show finished, and then he chatted with me off air, and he started telling me that he really wanted me to become part of the Chaos family and to write my book, and he would help me promote it, and we had this wonderful conversation, and he was just, he was just really incredible. And then 
after that, so then I signed the contract, I started writing the book, um, and I was assigned an editor. And then Wayne Dyer contacted me and said, I would like to fly you over to, uh, to the U.S. in October, which was last month, uh, to appear on my PBS special, which we are taping, and also to appear on stage with me in Pasadena. So, yeah, it's been an incredible How ride. exciting. Yeah, oh really. Goodness. Yeah, I mean, that's a big show. You know, so many people um, – well, let me give you – I he, he did that show – he does it every year or every two years. I don't even know. It seems like it's every year. He does one every year. Uh, I went to the taping of the show. I was just in the audience uh, in Boston a few years back. And I can't tell you how many people emailed or called me up and said, I saw you on Wayne Dyer. So, and I was in the audience. They, I think they showed me for two seconds. So this is going to be a lot of great exposure for you, your story, your message, and, and your book. That's so exciting. Talk about being in the flow. This is like in the flow for sure. Oh, it's been amazing. And Wayne Dyer, he's, he's really a fantastic mentor. You know, he's, he's an incredible person. Yeah. Very generous. Yeah. Well, I'm very happy for you. Um, you really deserve it. I think um, more and more people... Are, are going to change their lives because of some of the wisdom that you even have shared with us today. Uh, I really hope people will integrate these ideas into their life. I'm going to do it. Um, I know my wife's going to do it. And it really starts to be more loving, get a bit more in touch with that core essence uh, of ourselves, which, as you say, is just pure love. And, and even to start doing more things uh, that I want to do out of love rather than, you know, if doing things out of a sense of fear or, or obligation or even responsibility. So thank you for all that you have shared with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Really, it is. Uh, it, it, it's, it is ours, too. And uh, people can visit your website, anitamorjani.com. There's a link to it underneath the, the video. And uh, we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. We'll watch, we'll watch the PBS special with Wayne Dyer uh, in the coming months. When does that start, in January, or is it already out there? No, it's, um, I think it's going to be aired in San Diego in January, and then from March it's going to be everywhere else. Okay, all right. Well, your world is going to just take over. Uh, nobody's going to be able to get in touch with you after March, I'm sure. <laughs> Have fun with the journey. Thank you. Thanks Thank so you. much. Thank you. Bye, Anita. Bye. Bye, Bob.